This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I had an opportunity to connect with Dr. Brett Scher. He is a board-certified cardiologist and lipidologist in San Diego. He's helping to really change the narrative in terms of looking at health and prevention and is head of the podcast dietdoctor.com and also does telemedicine cardiology. He's someone that I've been fortunate to have interacted with on social media. I've had the opportunity to be on his podcast. I respect him enormously. He's so well-versed in the medical literature and on so many levels, he's the kind of cardiologist that I wish I had had an opportunity to work with when I was in cardiology as an NP. Today, we really dove into his background, how he started in preventative cardiology with a Dean Ornish type approach, which is low fat veganism, how he evolved into being more focused on low carb ketogenic diets, as well as lifestyle medicine. We talked a bit about the kind of broken medical system and the contributors to that, as well as antiquated dogma that's been perpetuated like fat is bad and that saturated fat in particular meat are unhealthy. We did deep dive into the cholesterol paradigm and things that you need to look out for beyond just LDL specific, more advanced lipid analysis that can be very helpful to tease out whether or not you need to be concerned about your lipid values. We talked a lot about metabolic flexibility. We dove into a bit of biohacking and his personal philosophies on how these can be helpful for many patients and perhaps create anxiety and stress in others. And then really wrapped it up talking about where we see preventative cardiology and and metabolic flexibility going in the future. And so I hope that you enjoy this podcast. This is one that I found particularly joyful to record because it harkens me back to my cardiology days, but also demonstrates and really uh, focuses in on someone that I look to as really changing the path of medicine moving forward. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm so thrilled and delighted to have you on the podcast. I've gotten a lot of requests to have you on in particular because you are a forward-thinking cardiologist. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I really enjoyed having you on my podcast. So it's nice to sort of, you know, flip the table, so to speak. Absolutely. It's very humbling. And I do have to mention for anyone that has not listened to that podcast, we were in temporary housing. And to my horror, I realized that I looked... Like maybe I was a hoarder because there were so many boxes behind me, but I I tried to overlook that. So hopefully your listeners will as well. (laughs) So let's dive into your background because as a cardiologist, your training was pretty unique. My understanding is that you train kind of with an Ornish focused perspective and for listeners that may not be familiarized with Dr. Ornish's teachings, I would love for you to talk about how that initially influenced the way that you were practicing. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I did a a cardiology fellowship that was a combined general and preventive cardiology fellowship at Scripps Clinic. And it was modeled after the Dean Ordish style of practice, which is a very low fat plant-based, basically vegan diet. But that's not it. It was also, you know, social connections and getting people to quit smoking and exercise and stress management, all these other wonderful things that people just loved and really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. 
And then the diet part, they sort of like what, tried to white knuckle their way through the majority of them. Some really, you know, took to it, but the majority I found kind of tried to white knuckle their way through it. And then, you know, that was the teaching that that's the way to do it. That's the one way to help people improve their cardiovascular health and to practice preventive cardiology. So when I got out into practice, that's, you know, where my brain was and that's how I was practicing. And you know, it was a very unique setting because people came to this program knowing what it was. And then you get out into the quote unquote real world and you're just seeing people, you know, from any swath of life and trying to convince them that this is the way to go to improve their life. And patient after patient just either wouldn't comply with it, right? So you write in your chart, did not comply with lifestyle modifications or lifestyle modifications aren't having the impact we were hoping. And then out comes the prescription pad, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what's next when lifestyle doesn't do it. Well, maybe I was a little slow on the uptake and I'm a little embarrassed looking back, but eventually I caught on and thought, hmm, if all these patients aren't able to stick with it, or if it's not having the effect, maybe it's me, maybe it's my advice and it's not actually the patient's fault. And that, you know, you laugh and I laugh thinking about it, but it's actually like a huge revelation for a doctor to get to that point. You know, there's the old saying, if you're in a class and 99% of the people are getting A's and one kid is, is getting an F. Okay, it's probably that kid's fault. But if 99% of the class is getting F's and one kid's getting an A, probably not the kid's fault at that standpoint. So doctors at some point need to have this revelation. And that's fortunately the revelation I had, which led me down this path to then start my own wellness clinic. So at first I thought, all I need is just more time with the patients. I just need more face-to-face time. Let's get out of the you know regular clinic system and, and have more time with them. And I was fortunate enough to be working with a friend of mine who was an amazing health coach, but had experience in low-carb and ketosis. Mm-hmm. And so for some of our more challenging patients, he would say, hey, why don't we try you know a ketogenic diet on this guy because his metabolic health is not improving. He's not losing weight. He's having trouble sticking to his, his lifestyle program. Of course, at first I thought he was crazy, but he was, luckily he challenged me, you know, have you read about it? Have you researched it? And I said, you know what? I haven't. I'm just sort of going off of everything I've learned from my training background. And from there, it just opened my eyes for me to learn that there was scientific literature supporting low carb nutrition for metabolic health that existed, but was really almost literally swept under the rug, you could say, in training programs and education because nobody talked about it. And in fact, it was the opposite. You know, people would say how bad, how fat in general was in any animal product and it has no place in a healthy diet. So the the exact opposite was taught, but yet this literature existed. And that just set me down the rabbit hole to complete my training, as I say it, because it was clearly not completed before. And that completed my training to open my eyes to other options that exist to really help people improve their cardiovascular health, their metabolic health, their life in general. Well, first, I love that you talk a lot about lifestyle medicine, because I think in many ways, that's what's missing from a more traditional kind of allopathic focus is that we're taught to find the disease, treat a symptom, prescribe medication, and then move on. And I think the nutrition, the sleep quality, the stress management, the exercise is equally important. And that really isn't emphasized in our training. So that's the first piece. Secondly, I'm so grateful that you were open to the idea of thinking beyond where your training had been. And for many people that are listening, I think many of us were on this path. I started feeling in cardiology once I came out of the haze of having two kids two years apart and just being exhausted all the time. I was saying something is broken. 
I'm writing more prescriptions. The patients are getting younger. They're insulin resistant that are clearly metabolically unhealthy. I mean, I used to beg, I used to try to find any way to connect with my patient. I would say, okay, so tell me about your kids. And they would talk about their six-year-old and they're so excited. I want you to be healthy watching your child grow and mature. I don't want you to be in a position where you don't have the energy to play ball with them, or you don't have the energy to take them to events. You don't have the energy to be an active participant as a parent. I was always looking for an angle. And so that nutrition piece is really, really powerful. And why do you think it's taken a, a long bit of time? And certainly there are many physicians that are very outspoken talking about low carb diets, talking about ketogenic lifestyles, talking about metabolic flexibility or inflexibility, if you will. Why do you think that it's so hard to change dogma here in the United States? I'll just, you know, kind of keep it to the United States because it could apply to a lot of the westernized world. But why do we think it's so hard to get healthcare professionals to shift focus? Yeah, that is a great question and really sort of a multi-layered answer. You know, on the one hand, it's what people were taught, what people have done, you know, depending on the age of the physician for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it's what they've done. It's hard to learn new things, you know, especially if you're in a busy practice where learning is not necessarily rewarded. Mm-hmm. Seeing patients quickly is rewarded. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's just hard for people to change. The other aspect, though, is how to say this nicely, like, where's the money coming from, right? The money's not coming from lifestyle. The money's coming from pharmaceutical companies. Anything that, you know, education is frequently sponsored by Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical companies. Research is sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. So it's going to have a definite pharmaceutical twist. I mean, you look at the people who are on the cholesterol guidelines committee and you look at their conflicts of interest. And it's as long as the document itself about the guidelines. I mean, they are all working for the different biotech companies or the pharmaceutical companies. And so they, and that may not mean that they are, you know, a shill for the pharma company and that they're just trying to make profit for the pharma company. I'm not saying that, but it definitely means their mindset is drug first mindset, right? Because they're so invested in their education and their whole life and career with pharma companies. So their mindset is pharma first. So that's the other problem that we're fighting. And then the third thing is just the dogma that's been taught for so long and just ingrained in society that animal products and meat are bad, you know, plants are good, period, end of story, no room for nuance or combination. And you know, don't even get me started on the, you know, the healthy whole grains, the American (laughs) Heart Association heart symbol for healthy Honey Nut Cheerios. And that just shows how, how backwards our society and medical society really has been when it comes to nutritional teaching. It's far too simplistic. It's far too black and white. And that's been hard to undo all that, uh, you know, decades and decades of that. And then I guess you could think the last piece of the puzzle is the big organizations that have been making recommendations for so long. How does this major organization say, oops, you know, we were wrong and we need to undo what we were doing. You know, that old statement of how do you back out of that room? That's challenging too. So you put all of those pieces together. One of those pieces by itself is a little bit difficult to overcome put all of them together. And that's why this ship is turning so slowly. But at least we can say it is starting to turn a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. We're starting to see this sort of groundswell of people saying, wait, we do need to have a broader perspective of what it means to be healthy. We do need a broader perspective of what it means to have a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet. 
and not talking about this specific food or this specific food, but talk about your whole nutritional mm -hmm. composition as you know, what's healthy, not specific food. So we are starting to see that groundswell and gosh, I wish it was a lot faster, but it certainly is a lot bigger than it was 10 years ago, you know, when I was still firmly entrenched in sort of the old teachings. Yeah, no. And I think you bring up so many good points. And for anyone that's listening, that wasn't aware of all of those variables that contribute to why it takes a long amount of time to make these changes. I know that 10 years ago, I read a book by a woman named Robin O'Brien called The Unhealthy Truth. And I talked very openly that that book changed my life. I was so mad when I read that book and I thought, you know, I trained at a big research institution. I stay up on my CME. You know, I'm working for this very busy cardiology practice. How did I not know this? And so, you know, from there, it really inspired in me because I had a child with food allergies to start looking a little more deeply. And I do believe irrespective of what initials we have after our names or what titles we have, it's really important to be lifelong learners. And mm -hmm. that really kind of shifted my perspective. And so I think over the last five to six years, I've really started to see some changes. I know a lot of the cardiologists in my practice were supportive of my desire to want to talk about nutrition. And they would humor me and say, you know, Cynthia is really interested in the nutrition piece. I said, it all starts with food. That was always the mantra yeah. that I came from. And then I fell into the fasting bucket and that, you know, really shifted things until I literally couldn't go back to work anymore and continue just, I mean, all I was doing in, in a very busy interventional cardiology practice, that's all I did was write scripts, right. whether in clinic or in the hospital. And, you know, I applaud cardiologists like yourself that are changing the face and the way that we look at preventative cardiology, really looking at prevention. And I think most of us probably trained in some degree of preventative medicine, but we never practiced it. Like I know technically I trained as an adult primary care NP. I never practiced adult primary care. I always did acute care. I was always in the hospital. I was always dealing with sick mm -hmm. patients and I worried about the prevention. I mean, that's someone else's problem, but now I'm really realizing it's all of our problem because someone right. needs to take ownership of it because our patients in many ways we've conditioned them, whether it's been the contributions of the pharmaceutical industry, the food industry, our own, you know, conditioning when we're interacting with them, you know, they come to us with symptoms expecting a pill to fix their problems. So to mm -hmm. say to them, Oh, I want you to sleep more, move your body, eat less often, you know, eat less carbs. They're like, well, wait a minute, this isn't what I bought into. And so it's, it's really shifting a lot of perspectives and ways that make people uncomfortable. Yeah. And it, you're so right. I mean, it's so easy to just think about your lane, you know, the whole stay in your lane. I work in the hospital. I'm going to fix them up and send them out and let mm -hmm. their primary doctor take care of everything else. Well, you know, that's starting to shift as well. Um, and now, you know, a diet doctor, we have a number of hospital-based physicians listed on our doctor map, which is great because what it means is these are hospital-based physicians interested in teaching about nutrition, teaching about lifestyle, and not just trying to put a Band-Aid, fix the, the acute problem, and send them back, but rather start the conversation now in the hospital. You know, Maybe they're going to be more receptive. Maybe they're going to be less receptive. Who knows? But you don't know unless you try. I'm really encouraged to start and see that trend that hospital-based physicians are getting involved with prevention as well, because it's so important. We all need to start the discussion and talk about it and bring it back to lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. At some point, we've all been sold a big, fat lie. 
It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer-term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. I'm sure that you see this all the time, but one of my, you know, we would sit back and be 
well, not that we got to eat lunch very often, but we would sit in the doctor's lounge and maybe we were discussing a case or discussing an interesting patient. And I would say, okay, well, I diagnosed three people with diabetes today. And, and that was a running joke, but it was truth because one of the labs that was done very frequently, one of the hospitals that I worked in was a hemoglobin A1C. So for anyone who's listening, gives a snapshot of, of blood sugar control over the last 90 days. And if it's particularly high, there's no question someone has diabetes. And so we would play the game of what's the highest hemoglobin A1C you've seen this week. And so, you know, people would, you know, 12, 15, 20, I mean, outrageous numbers because you realize in this person, it, this didn't just happen. You know, this isn't, it yeah. isn't just the hospitalization, your blood sugar has been out of control, but on many levels, like having those discussions and empowering our patients. And this is definitely something I wanted to touch on with you about probably two months ago, three months ago, and this happens to all of us on social media, you stick your neck out and you start to shift the paradigm and make people think, and maybe you trigger people. Eventually you're going to get some hate on social media, which I generally try to avoid because I, I don't like drama. And so this particular female cardiologist came after me because I was encouraging people to ask for glucometers, even metabolically healthy people or, and, or if they could financially afford it, get a continuous glucose monitor, which I believe is one of the most impactful biohacking slash technology devices we can utilize ourselves personally, or even with our patients. And this person came after me <laughs> on social media. And then a week and a half later, I realized that this individual had a connection with a pharmaceutical company about a drug to deal with diabetes. And so oh. I started to recognize that, you know, there was a, a vested interest in making sure that, you know, she was calling people out in this area, but I'd love to kind of touch on what are some of the technology pieces that perhaps you're utilizing with your patients right now that you feel are particularly valuable? I know glucometers, continuous glucose monitors, I think are incredibly invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'll start with CGM since you brought it up and I agree, they are so valuable and they're as valuable psychologically as they are physiologically. I mean, the, to have that accountability partner right there in the, your phone, the app on your phone screen to know that you're going to see that rise if you stray or if you eat things, maybe you shouldn't. So that's one part. But the other part is the education. I mean, you know, if there's one thing we've learned is that people respond differently to different foods. There's no one response. There's no one diet. Some people can have a bunch of sweet potato and not see much of a, a bump in their blood sugar. Some people just look at a sweet potato and their blood <laughs> sugar is going to go up, right? There's a huge variety. And how do you know, right? So this concept of healthy whole grains, healthy fruits, healthy vegetables, well, sure, populations in general can eat those foods and be healthy. That is a far cry from saying those foods are healthy for everybody. So learning about that is so important because otherwise you're just shooting in the dark and assuming you are like these general populations in these general studies, as opposed to being an individual. So I think that's so important. But as some people have pointed out on social media, there's a bit of a downside too. Like you can take it too far and you can say, I'm wearing the CGM. And to me, it's like a video game and I want that straight line yeah. blood sugar and anything that causes a little bump up, that's bad. It's out. Well, that's maybe going a little too far. And we have a whole guide on CGMs at Diet Doctor that I wrote with that comes with guidelines about mm -hmm. sort of what to look for. You know, it's normal to have your blood sugar go up and come down. But when it goes up, you know, if it's under 120, great. If it comes back to normal within an hour, great. If it's up to 140 and comes back in two hours, yeah, okay, mm -hmm. you're starting to push the boundaries. And anything past that, 
bad, right? If you wanted to assign a good and bad term, you know, so, so having some parameters like that can really be helpful. So then you can understand how your body reacts to different foods, to combinations of different foods, and use that tool for, I think, maximum efficacy. So that's definitely one. You know, other tools in tech is really interesting. You know, you can talk about like the sleep tracking rings, the activity monitors on your wrist. For some people, these are going to be great because they're going to show that maybe you're not doing as well as you thought you were. And for other people, it's just going to be one more frustrating piece of the puzzle that is, you know, one more tech thing they have to figure out. So part is knowing who you're working with. Like, I don't give a certain tech thing to everybody, but what I do want to do is engage with somebody to see if they're the type of person who's going to benefit from more data, who's going to benefit from tech, who's going to benefit from some sort of accountability partner that they wear on their wrist that's really going to help open their eyes. So for those people, I think that can be really, really helpful. Same thing for like monitoring ketones, mm -hmm. right? I don't think everybody needs to be in a ketogenic diet. I don't think a ketone level is necessarily your goal. Now, if for some reason you or your healthcare providers decided it's best for you to be in ketosis rather than just, you know, focus on low carb and metabolic health benefits, but to actually be in ketosis, sure, then a ketone monitor is very helpful for showing that. But that doesn't mean you need to prove that you have a ketone level above 0.5 to be healthy. Those two don't disconnect. So it's one of the things I find so interesting about tech, you know, there's like such a great benefit to so many things, but it's also kind of easy to take it a little too far and assign too much importance to it. So part of it is finding that balance with people. I think it's really important for anyone who's listening that you know yourself. I have several female clients who tend to run a little bit more higher anxiety. And so what we've agreed for them is that they do a CGM every quarter. So for two weeks, they'll do a CGM and then they don't wear it again. Or mm -hmm. if they are going to wear a biohacking device, whether it's an aura ring or, you know, they're monitoring how many steps they take, they're only allowed to check it a certain amount each day. And I think it's really important because we don't want to add to anxiety. We don't want people to get to the point that they don't participate in their real life because they're so focused on the data. Now I'm a little OCD by nature. I love data. And so I have, and I'm laughing as I'm, I'm like, I've got an aura ring on, I have an Apple watch. I have an Apollo neuro, but for me, it's a checking in point during my day. And so I don't ever do it. And I only wear my CGM. I wore it pretty continuously for about eight months and then I needed a break. But what I found interesting, and I've been low carb for a long, long time. And I do, and I'm very happy. Like my body's happy there. I sleep well, et cetera. My hormones seem to be pretty well balanced. But what I found interesting was when I started wearing my CGM, I actually needed smaller portions of protein and a little more fat because, you know, you can get kind of an, if you have a, a huge portion of protein, you can get an exaggerated blood sugar response in response to that meal. And so I found that I had to kind of augment my macros a bit. And the other thing I found really interesting is in this low carb, you know, kind of world that I've existed. And I usually have one higher carb day per week, but I mean, it's not a lot of carbs. It might be 75 and certain carbs, my body just did not like. And so I, yeah. I will use the example of plantains, which I loved every time I ate plantains, didn't matter how I made them, my blood sugar would spike to like 170. And I was like, Oh, I would mm. never have known. I didn't get sweaty. My pulse didn't go up. I had no symptoms to suggest I was intolerant of this. So I think it can be very insightful, even for individuals that are you know, relatively metabolically healthy. And so it's certainly one of those instances that I sometimes will say, maybe just wear or use a glucometer for a week or two, maybe the CGM you wear for two weeks and you put it away. 
much to your point, there are people on social media who don't want to see any blood sugar response. Like it's almost like a badge of honor. My blood sugar only deviated by five to 10 points the entire day. And I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. But I agree with you that we should see a rise in the fall. And it's so much more of it is the response to our meal and then making sure your blood sugar is coming back down in a timely manner. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. I'll even say, a la, you know, Marty Feldman, who's in Australia and is wonderful. He talks a lot about, you know, this threshold of no more than 25 or 30 points after eating a meal. And if you see, you know, levels higher than that, it can be indicative that your carbohydrate intake was too high. And so it just lots of different ways that people can use that information beneficially yeah. without being obsessive about it. I like your point about using a tool intermittently, just because you're using a tool doesn't mean you have to use it the whole time. So in a personal experience for that, you know, come summertime when the berries and the fruit just look so good, like I slapped a CGM on again, you know, because I wanted to see increasing my fruit intake, what the response was going to be. And, you know, started shifting more towards a higher protein diet to see what the shift or to see if there's going to be any change. Now I was fortunate for me, you know, the adding extra berries, adding extra fruit didn't make a difference. Increasing my protein, even as high as 40% for a little while, didn't make any bit of difference for the CDM. So, but I wanted to know that. I didn't want to guess. I wanted to know. So you use the tool to test it and you use it for a specific purpose and it can be very helpful that way. Yeah. And it's amazing. I think that, you know, this is an example where biohacking can be so beneficial because it can validate behavior or it can allow us to course correct to say, Hey, this is not working for me. It does not serve me. Well, I personally don't do any grains. I don't do gluten. I don't do dairy because they just don't work well for my body. And it's interesting how triggering that can be when you go into a social situation. I'm like, I'm great with protein. I'm great with non-starchy veggies that works well for me. I don't judge what you choose to eat. I just know what it does to my body. When I do eat those things, it's just not worth the net impact. Yeah. And, you know, all these packaged products and eating out that things are supposedly, you know, clean and healthy, testing those because you cannot trust uh, what's on a lot of these packaged products or what they say they're cooking with when they're eating out and what's in the sauce or whatever. So yeah, testing it can certainly help. Absolutely. Are there a couple ingredients for you that are complete deal breakers when you're talking to your patients and talking about processed foods, things on food labels that you advise them to avoid at all costs? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when they're adding fiber in, you know, a lot of that fiber is not going to work the same way as sort of natural fiber. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think when it comes to this whole debate of net carbs versus total carbs, I think it's helpful to use net carbs when you're talking about whole foods. If you're talking about, you know, vegetables and fruits and and nuts, okay, using net carbs there makes sense. But when you switch over to packaged and processed foods, that's where I think switching to total carbs makes more sense because you don't know how the fibers are going to act. Some synthetic fibers or added fibers do raise glucose and insulin, are absorbed and count for calories. Some don't. So rather than having to learn it all and you know be so specific because not everybody likes to be that detailed, just count total carbs from that standpoint. So I think that's one helpful hint. You know, sugar alcohols are generally okay, but again, you know, you have to be cautious with those one from a GI standpoint, but two, you know, know how you respond. So I don't know that I can say something like if you see this run the other way, other than the longer the ingredient list, the worse it is, right? That's a pretty safe assumption, but you know, there are lots of questions about, is this food keto? And rather than saying in this, is this food keto? I like to say, does it fit for you and your lifestyle and fit for whatever carb level you're set for yourself? 
and how do you respond to it? You know, how does it fit in your overall plan? That's a better question. And so for me, just, you know, the simple of whole foods, fewer ingredients, you're never going to go wrong. I think that's really important, you know, when you're, especially when we're talking to patients and trying to meet them where they are. And for a lot of people, you know, maybe it's been such a huge pivot for them to eat less processed foods. They need to find a keto dessert or a keto mm-hmm. bread or one of those types of, you know, products that are out there. And there's no shame in that. You know, I always think yeah. about like the ingenious Maria Emmerich who comes up with these protein sparing breads. And I mean, it's just, it's amazing what she does in the kitchen. And so I always applaud her because she's helping people still feel like they can enjoy eating something indulgent. That's not nearly as unhealthy as it's conventionally processed counterparts. I think I was kind of thinking about things like seed oils because, you know, that seems to be an area that I will sometimes say to my patients or clients, you know, if you do nothing else, read the food labels and really try to avoid like soybean oil and canola oil and and some of these things that are already so highly inflammatory and hugely problematic, especially when we're talking about a a population that I think the last statistic I read was that 88% of the population is metabolically unhealthy. So really thinking about what are the things that are driving, you know, more inflammation, which is going to just inflame our bodies more. And I know many doctors don't like any of us saying the word inflammation, because it can mean something positive and something negative in terms of whether it's acute or chronic. And it's the chronic stuff that we really have to worry about. Yeah. You know, and seed oils is a great topic. And, you know, again, at diet doctor, we have a whole guide on it. And I recently did a podcast with six different experts in different fields to really try and cover the, the topic as best we can. And I mean, I guess I, I take a little bit different take to seed oils than many in the low carb community. And look, as a doctor, I do not recommend my patients eat seed oils. Personally, I completely avoid seed oils. I think the whole debate over seed oils stems from being afraid of saturated fats and you have to avoid saturated fats. So what other fats do you use? Well, you, you know, what do you cook in and what do you use for salad dressing since you can't use saturated fats? Okay. You use seed oils. Well, no, first of all, you know, the whole debate is wrong. Yes. Use saturated fats. We got to get over that, right? Saturated fats are perfectly fine, especially within the context of a healthy low carb diet, avocado oil, olive oil are great choices. Okay, but then the question becomes, do I have to be vigilant about avoiding all seed oils when I eat out and in salad dressings? And is it proven to be that harmful? My take on it is it's actually not proven in human clinical studies to be so harmful that it has to be completely avoided. There is really disturbing mechanistic studies, no question about it. I mean, it it is really disturbing. But when you look at the human data with clinical outcomes, it's just not there. So I would stop short of saying seed oils are the cause of all this trouble and is the number one thing to be avoided. But at the same time, and I know maybe it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, at the same time, I say there's still no need for them and you shouldn't add them. But if you eat out a couple of times a week and they cook in in seed oils, that's not going to harm you if eating out those two times a week improves your enjoyment of life and, you know, enhances your ability to stick with your nutritional program you know, helps your life in some way. Okay. You know, if you try to make your own salad dressing as much as you can, but you've run out and you need to get something. So you get some store-bought salad dressing and you use it, you know, sparingly, that's not going to hurt you. Right. So I think we need to, I think it's sort of blown out of proportion and has been twisted in terms of what the, even the purpose of the discussion is. So 
uh, we go into much more about this in the podcast. So I would recommend people listen to it. It's um, it's like an hour and a half podcast or something with the six individuals. But that's my general take home. Like, sure, you should absolutely avoid them. But if you can't, it's okay, right? The evidence is not that strong that they're going to hurt you in small amounts, even though the mechanistic data is very concerning. That doesn't always translate to human outcomes. Well, I appreciate your pragmatism because I think in this space where we can get very dogmatic and this is good, this is bad, you know, it's, you have to be low carb or there's something wrong with you. I mm-hmm. think the bio-individuality piece is without question that, you know, someone may do carnivore for a couple months and then they may pivot and, you know, embrace a plant-based lifestyle for a few months. And then they may, you know, dive into low carb and ketogenic diets or paleo or primal really the one thing that all of those diets in their purest form is that they're eating less processed foods. And that's a good thing. But I think we've gotten so fixated on labeling. Like we want to put everyone in a bucket like, Oh, you're a low carb doctor. So I'm going to put you in this bucket. And okay. This Mm -hmm. nurse practitioner is kind of straddling two buckets. So she's not really sure she has an identity crisis. She's not sure where (laughs) she fits, but I think it's really important to acknowledge how important it is to just be pragmatic and not be dogmatic on so many levels. It would be without question that one of the most common requests that I got when I reached out on social media and shared that we were connecting was to really unpack cholesterol. I know Mm. within my nurse practitioner years, you know, things have shifted quite a bit. You know, what I was taught during my training, even though I worked at a big preventive cardiology center is very different than the conversations I even have now. And so again, this goes back to, you know, when did this shift start happening, you know, from a historical perspective where we got so misguided, we got really fixated on bastardizing fats and not really looking at the true culprit that was behind the scenes that was driving the real issues with inflammation and obesity and cardiovascular disease. You know, where did we really get so misguided? Where did that stem from? I mean, you can say it all started way back with the anthel key stuff, right? Mm-hmm. The science that wasn't really science, that was just, you know, uh, loose observations and published and promoted as end all be all science or, you know, go all the way back to Eisenhower and his heart attack when he was smoking three packs a day, but everyone wanted to blame it on his fat intake. You know, the, you can stem that far back, but the point is it's grown, you know, you can't blame everything just on those incidents because it has taken on a life of its own and grown and the involvement of pharmaceutical companies and for lowering LDL. And if, you know, if your tool is a hammer, you look for nails. So I think a lot of that has impacted it and the ease of it, right? If you just want to focus on fixing somebody's LDL and you can write them a prescription and you have done your job, you helped your patient, you pat yourself on the back, you get paid more from Medicare. I mean, like all these incentives pile on top of it that you can't blame the doctors really for going that direction on the one hand, but it really is just so short-sighted to think that that is the end-all be-all. And, you know, when you look at huge populations of mostly metabolically unhealthy people following low-fat, generally unhealthy lifestyles, and you see a small improvement by lowering LDL cholesterol, that does not mean LDL is the most important thing. And that's where the conversation, I think, fortunately is starting to shift, although again, not nearly quickly enough, but there was this recent paper published in JAMA in recent, maybe like in the past six months or something based on the the women's health initiative study. And they followed these women for, you know, 20 some odd years. And they looked at what were the risk factors that were most predictive of someone getting a heart attack in the future? So it wasn't, you know, randomized study. It was just observational 
but they said, okay, this many women had heart attacks. Let's go back and see what the abnormalities were that were most closely associated with that increased risk. And LDL is on the list mm-hmm. right, with a hazard ratio of 1.3. It's a small increased risk. It's on the list. ApoB, a mm-hmm. better measure than just LDL, but still sort of measuring something similar, was there at 1.7. The lipoprotein insulin resistance score, so meaning that basically the lipid findings most closely associated with insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction, that was above six. So that was five times more predictive than LDL by itself. But yet we talk about LDL at least five times more than we talk about metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance. So those are flipped. And then if you look at disease characteristics, it was, you know, diabetes was a 10, metabolic syndrome was a seven and hypertension was up there, right? So these were all profoundly more impactful than LDL, yet LDL gets the majority of the conversation. And again, it's not that LDL is non-existent and is not on the list. It's on the list. I just think it has to be put in perspective with metabolic health and other factors. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. 
I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Yeah, no. And I think that's really an important distinction. I know when I was still practicing for this large group, you know, if someone had a heart attack, we got really diligent about looking at the overall LDL numbers and, you know, tweaking and adjusting medications to get those numbers where we wanted them to be convincing, you know, patients that, you know, the statin induced myopathies, you know, the muscle achiness would, would get better with time. Oh, we'll adjust it. We'll put you on a different one, but recognizing, and the running joke in cardiology was we're going to put statins in the water. And, and I mean, no disrespect for anyone who's listening. It was a running joke because they can be incredibly effective at lowering values you're looking at on a lab report. It doesn't mean the patient right. feels good. It doesn't mean that it's impacting, you know, future events, et cetera. But one thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that not all LDL is bad. And so, you know, there are advanced lipid analysis. You were alluding to some of that. Let's unpack a little bit about there are different types of LDL. Some are more atherogenic, some are more disease producing, more inflammatory than others. And, and so if anyone's listening, if they don't have cardiovascular disease, and you're told that your LDL is high, these are the types of tests you should really have a conversation with your healthcare professional, how important these are to do. I myself am called a lean hyper responder, despite having a super healthy diet and being metabolically healthy. You know, we did the advanced lipid analysis. And so I just happen to be one of those people that has a high LDL. It's like 160, which sent my primary care provider into apoplexy until I asked for the VAP to ask for this advanced lipid analysis. But let's unpack that. So for listeners that they understand, and appreciate why this is important to be able to have that advanced information. Yeah. So the testing comes by different names, depending on which lab, it could be just advanced lipoprotein NMR. It could be a VAP, like you mentioned, but the point is that you're not just looking at the total amount of LDL cholesterol, but instead you're looking at either the ApoB or the LDL particle number, which are better markers than just the total LDL cholesterol. Cause you want to know how many LDL particles you have and how many what we call remnant particles you have too. So that's where you start talking about the VLDL, which usually doesn't come up on a regular test. And even more so, it'll tell you the size of the LDL particles. Because if if there's one thing you don't want, it's the small LDL particles or the oxidized LDL particles or the glycated LDL particles, which comes with higher blood sugar. So those are the things you want to avoid for sure. So you want your LDL particles to be the larger less dense LDL particles. Now, there's still plenty of debate within the cardiology world whether larger LDL particles are harmful in and of themselves, and that's a whole other debate, but it's clear. There's no debate that you want to avoid the small particles and the oxidized particles, but how do you know that if you just get a standard lipid profile? Well, if your HDL is low and your triglycerides are high, chances are you've got the small particles, but you're still kind of guessing and you're not going to be able to follow it as closely. So that's why I think getting advanced testing is very important. And one thing that's interesting is most societal guidelines for like the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, they recommend against the advanced testing. And from their perspective, it makes sense because it doesn't necessarily add to the question, does this person need a statin or not? So that's how you're framing it. Do they need a statin? And what effect does the statin have 
all you really need to see is the LDL. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate. But if instead you want to know what impact does this person's lifestyle have on their lipids, then absolutely you need to know the advanced testing. Because as we saw in like the Verta Health trial, where LDLC went up by 10%, but for with a low-carb ketogenic diet, LDLC went up. ApoB did not change, and the calculated cardiovascular risk went down 12%. So if all you do is look at the LDLC, you're going to be like, up. Oh, Lifestyle is not working. Sorry, it's going the wrong way. But if instead you get more detailed analysis, you see that the ApoB is not changing. You see that the VLDL is going down. You see that the small LDL is going down. And you see that the calculated cardiovascular risk is going down. All of a sudden you say, huh, your lifestyle is working. You are getting healthier and reducing your cardiovascular risk, even though this archaic measure of LDLC went up by 10%. So absolutely, when you're talking about lifestyle, the advanced testing makes a big difference. And I highly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I had plenty of seemingly relatively healthy middle-aged men and women who really had a strong desire not to be on statin therapy or on cholesterol lowering medication. And so this was very often a reasonable request. The other thing that I think is interesting is looking at coronary CTAs or CT angiograms for individuals that want to quantify whether or not they have any you know, placking in their arteries. And so let's talk a little bit about that. I got quite a few questions about that as well, where people really want to understand what's the value. Can I ask for this? Is it Mm -hmm. reasonable? I really don't want to be on additional medication. Yeah. Yeah. So first um, differentiating between a calcium score and a CT angiogram. So calcium score is pretty ubiquitous and anybody can really order one nowadays. And even if insurance doesn't cover it, it should be like about a hundred bucks or something. And it's a quick test. You're in and out, no IVs, no contrast, uh, low dose radiation. And it will tell you if you have calcium in the walls of your artery, it doesn't tell you anything about the inside of your arteries, but it'll tell you if you have calcium in the walls of your artery. If you do, the calcium likely got there because of vascular injury and a healing response to that So that shows that there is atherosclerosis and that there is vascular injury occurring. And just having that puts you at a higher risk for cardiovascular events. Now, again, it's all, you know, a prediction model and the higher the score, the higher the risk. Now that's different than saying the CT angiogram. A CT angiogram is a much more involved test and a better test for a lot of people, maybe not for everybody, but for a lot of people, because what that involves is you do get an IV you do get contrast injected. It's a higher radiation exam, but still relatively low, especially when done in an experienced institution who can modulate the dose and are very cautious about that. And it will show you not just the walls of the artery, but the insides of the arteries. So if you have calcium in the walls of your arteries and is only in the walls of your arteries and not causing any plaque in the inside of your arteries, that's very different than if you have sort of this mixed calcified plaque and soft plaque in inside the arteries. So I get this a lot on patients that I'm seeing because you have calcium, does that mean you need a statin? You know, well, it means you need to focus on lifestyle and reducing cardiovascular risk in a broad fashion. A statin may or may not be part of that. But if you have soft plaque in the lumen of your artery in addition to that calcium, for me, that's a little bit more of a push that it's sort of an all hands on deck kind of treatment, which could include a statin in addition to aggressive treatments. Now, is that completely evidence-based? Has that been looked at? Well, no, not really, because let's be honest, people aren't looking for ways to not prescribe statins, right? Those studies aren't being done very much. It's mostly 
how to prescribe statins. Although fortunately, we've seen this one trial out of Walter Reed showing if your calcium score was zero, or for these people in the study, if their calcium score was zero, their 10-year risk was unchanged whether they were on a statin or not. So at least for that population, it's good news that a statin didn't seem to benefit anything. But CTA does give you much more information with a slightly higher radiation dose, with a higher cost. If insurance doesn't cover it, it could be $800 to $1,200. And most primary care doctors aren't going to be comfortable ordering it because it's a much more specialized test. Some will, but the majority of tests are likely ordered by cardiologists for that. It seems completely reasonable. I mean, I know years ago I would occasionally have, I refer to affectionately as the worried well. I'm sure that you have a few of these in your practice. And so they wanted to be as absolutely clear about their risk profile, even based, you know, we would run, you know, the Framingham, all this data that we would try to run for them. They still wanted to know with some degree of certainty. So before we kind of wrap up today, I definitely want to touch on, you know, the issue with saturated fat on so many levels, saturated fat has gotten such a terrible name. And I still feel like even on social media, even on Twitter, which tends to be the place, you know, the manosphere where there'll be these very rigorous debates on what is considered or construed as safety, safe, unsafe, whatever the dogmatic principles are that are embraced at that given moment. And the joke now is becoming, even when you just provide anecdotal evidence for something that works with your patient population, they're like, well, what about a study? Can't you quote a study? And I just try to explain to people that some of it's just based on clinical practice, but obviously you're so well steeped in the literature. I thought it would be helpful to kind of wrap up talking about, you know, saturated fat should not be demonized on any level. Yeah. You know, this is where people really lose sight of quality of evidence, unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, because one, there's no such thing as one saturated fat. There's food that contains saturated fat, right? So in these observational studies, how do you know if they're eating a big plate of spaghetti with meat sauce that's also got sugar and not fillers and all sorts of other things, or if they're eating a spinach salad with, you know, grass-fed beef on it, right? Those are both saturated fat in these studies, in these observational studies. Also, this whole concept of healthy user bias that I talk so much about that you absolutely cannot control for. You cannot control for all the lifestyle factors that some people, that people have that make them healthy or unhealthy. And if people are being enrolled in these trials in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, where the overwhelming message is saturated fat is bad, saturated fat is bad, well, who's more likely to be eating saturated fat? The person who's more concerned with their health or less concerned with their health, right? So when you take these general population studies, then what kind of diet are they eating the saturated fat in? You know, caloric excess combined high carb, high fat diets. Okay. So in that subset, we can say diets that contain saturated fats, saturated fat containing foods that are hypercaloric, high carb, high fats are bad diets. Doesn't mean saturated fat is a bad food. Those are two very different statements, right? So then when you try and unpack that a little further, you can look at randomized controlled trials. So the Cochrane database did this review of randomized controlled trials on saturated fat containing foods. And there was no difference in who lived or died, first of all, whether you ate the most or the least saturated fat, no difference in who lived or died. There was a small difference in the risk of heart attack. Then when they looked at it even further though, that was only present when you compared the top to the bottom amount of saturated fat and LDL went up significantly. Okay, so now we're unpeeling the onion even more and getting down to, all right, so saturated fat is maybe only concerning for the, in this one subset. And of course, those would tend to be hypercaloric, mixed, high-fat, high-carb diets. So when you ask the question, is saturated fat 
clearly harmful across the board? The answer is no, we definitely do not have that evidence. There are observational trials showing that people who eat more saturated fat have less heart risk. Okay, how do you explain that if saturated fat is such a dangerous food component? Then you have randomized controlled trials and intervention trials that don't limit saturated fat, let people eat as much saturated fat as they want that show health improvements with health improvements in diabetes, um, improvements in lipids, you know, improvements in overall cardiovascular risk. So how do you explain that if saturated fat containing foods are so bad? So we really have to sort of first get away from talking about saturated fats. We have to talk about, you know, natural fats because, oh yeah, right. A saturated fat, a cake and a candy and a baked good too, or is it, you know, chicken, fish, steak, you know, even olive oil has some saturated fat in it. So, you know, there's no, and steak is, tends to be more monos than saturated anyway, especially if it's grass-fed, it tends to be a little bit higher in mono. So this whole concept of saturated fat is sort of off. So instead we have to talk about the dietary context. So if you're not hypercaloric, if you're eating relatively low carbs and you're eating whole foods, there is zero proven risk to, to saturated fat containing foods. And I think that's the message that you know, it took me, what, five minutes or whatever, just to explain this. It's so much easier just to say, I avoid saturated fats, they're bad, right? Bad, good. So much easier instead of me having to get all up in arms and raise my blood pressure trying to explain that saturated fats are, are not harmful for five minutes. It's a big difference in the explanation. But that's, in my mind, from what I see in the literature, uh, that is the true explanation that I think is also most helpful for people. Because, you know, if eating steak, if eating cheese, if eating butter is going to help you stay on a low carb diet, that's going to help you improve weight in a healthy weight loss manner, improve your metabolic health, feel good, feel energetic, then why would you want to avoid that? There's no evidence that you should. Yeah. And I think, you know, the two things that are really critically important, irrespective of gender life stage is sustainability and satiety. If you can make food satiating, like truly satiating, like I'm full, I can't eat another bite. And it's something you can sustain, you know, week after week, month after month and feel good about yourself. You can come back to it after you've gone on vacation, after the holidays, et cetera, then that's really the sweet spot. And for each one of us, that may look a little bit different for you. It might be a little more protein, little, you know, smaller portion of healthy fats. For me, I do really well doing moderate carbs lowish carbs and higher protein with some smaller plant-based. I hate using it to describing plant-based fats, but my body prefers plant-based fats to animal-based fats. It's just what works best for me. But finding that those two things, sustainability and satiety are critically important. Yeah, I agree so much. I agree so much. You know, that's how we sort of got into this problem in the beginning by thinking there's one diet for everybody, but that diet actually did not help people feel full the diet increased hunger, and that just set off a whole cascade of events. So, you know, there's this whole debate, did the dietary guidelines cause the obesity epidemic and cause the diabetes epidemic? Well, it depends how you define that, right? It certainly set up the atmosphere for that to occur by making people hungry, by creating this whole, you know, influx of low-fat, healthy treats. So it created this atmosphere because people were hungry and people had cravings. So you're right, so important to address that with your diet. And animal-based foods or you know higher-fat plant-based foods can be very important in addressing that hunger. So absolutely one of the key components to healthy nutrition. 
Absolutely. Well, it has been a true honor and a privilege to connect with you today. Your podcast is fantastic. It's definitely one that I listen to each week. How can listeners connect with you? What's the easiest way to go about doing so? Yeah, well, thanks. I really appreciate it. I love having this discussion with you and and hopefully your listeners enjoyed it as well. Best ways to find out more about me. A lot of my work now is at dietdoctor.com where I'm the medical director there. Um, I do still see patients in a virtual practice in certain states where I have licenses. You can find more about that at lowcarbcardiologist.com. And then, of course, the podcast, the Diet Doctor podcast and the Diet Doctor YouTube channel as well. I do a lot of videos there about like, you know, sort of like journal club type articles, you know, uh, concepts and news stories that are kind of breaking that need a little further explanation, I think you could say. So, yeah, dietdoctor.com and then the YouTube Diet Doctor channel. So grateful for your contributions. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFOS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.